we'll come to the observed effect. <laughs> a podcast of travel stories. Each week, we hope to bring you a conversation with someone we meet overseas. <laughs> and at least one good story. This week we're on site for episode 95, The Universal Particular, Dublin, where James etched his heart. Nine miles outside the city center, on a long, rocky strand, stands a lone stone tower overlooking Dublin Bay. The Friends of Joyce Tower Society tend a museum here, dedicated to the author, James Joyce, and particularly to his novel, Ulysses, for one wonderful reason. The book begins right here. So what we're going to do is we're going to go up these spiral staircase behind that door there. But I just want to warn you, just get up safely. It's very easy. It's only one turn around. But just for safety, make sure you keep to the right where the steps are a bit wider and hold on to the left to get up safely, okay? And we're going to go up to the next level. And I'll tell you about James Joyce's last night. Is that okay with everybody? Let's go. Sounds good. Ulysses is, of course, notoriously difficult, known for its stream-of-consciousness sections where Joyce replicates the inner working of the mind, are thoughts that don't move in complete sentences or by logic, but rather skip by association, interrupt, circle around obsessively, partially. This is the main room of the tower. It's called a round room for obvious reasons. And that's the main entrance to the tower. And the only entrance to the, to the tower that was first built. And if you were a military architect, you would know... At the same time, the book follows a character, Leopold Bloom, through just one single entire day in Dublin in 1904, in an attempt to recreate the city in exquisite detail and as much entirety as can fit into such a journey. There are also allusions to the Odyssey that map the day to Odysseus's decade-long mythical return to his wife, Penelope, from across the Aegean Sea, back home to Greece, linking the book of Ulysses to Europe's epic tradition in its ambition to be the most important modern depiction of the everyman who faces more mundane obstacles no less gallantly. The sirens become barmaids. The cyclops becomes the racist in the corner shouting at the perceived foreigner. Penelope becomes Molly, who waits at the end of the book for any hardy traveler that can go that far. So this book is an attempt at an encyclopedic universality in fragments. Joyce once said, in the particular is contained the universal. He wrote Ulysses in exile, having left Dublin in his youth, and the book is shot through with an exile's nostalgia and ambivalence. Consensus says it is the greatest book of last century, but few make it very far. So many break on the rocks of its dense language. That included me. I failed in my attempt 
back in 2004 to mark Bloom's Day on June 16th, 100 years after the day the book is set, June 16th, 1904. I went 300 pages and then quit. I've thought ever since that the only way to truly understand this book would be to come to Dublin itself. So I went to the Sandy Cove Tower last October and asked James Holohan of the Friends of Joyce Tower Society to explain to me exactly what this place meant, the Martello Tower in Sandy Cove, and how travel shaped Joyce's writing in the hope that the visit might generate enough momentum to push me through all 800 pages in the weeks following. This is, in part, our conversation and, in part, the tour that James takes guests on voluntarily through the tower. Now, I need your help because, in particular, I need your imaginations because I want you to imagine yourself here on the night of the 14th of September, 1904. It was James Joyce's last night of the six nights that he stayed in this town. Actually, do you know what? Can you switch that light there? you see the white switch there at the top? Can you switch that? Wow. I want you to imagine yourself here on the night of the 14th of September, 1904. Oliver St. Jacobi is asleep in his bed. Trench, the mad Englishman, he used to sleep in a hammock. We know that, so there's his hammock. And somewhere over there in the corner is James Joyce asleep on his bed, above him a shelf with some pots and pans. Now, I mentioned that this was a party house, so maybe it was after one of their great nights of revelry. But Trench awoke in the middle of the night. It was much darker than this. It was just the glowing embers, maybe, of a fire in the fireplace. Trench awoke in the middle of the night, and he was hallucinating. He was seeing things. And he thought he saw, emerging from the fireplace, a ferocious black panther. Now, as one does, you've got to stand this big American. He stepped with a loaded revolver by his side. And he took the gun, and in the darkness he began shooting at the perceived black panther. All hell broke loose. Nobody woke up, grabbed the gun from him. But instead of calming things down, he began to shoot over James Joyce's head at the pots and pans, declaring, don't worry, don't worry, I'll kill the beast myself. Now, I mentioned downstairs that the atmosphere between these men was a bit fraught, and James Joyce took this as a not-so-subtle hint that he should, to coin an American phrase, in the Dodge. And he left the tower, he fled the tower in the early hours of the morning of the 15th of September 1904, and he never, ever, ever came back here again. We can switch on the light now because the scary bit is over. <laughs> not only did he not come back to the tower, but in October of 1904, he and his wife-to-be, a woman from the west of Ireland called Nora Barnacle, left Ireland altogether to live out the rest of their lives, to all intents and purposes, in self-imposed exile. Now, they came back on a handful of occasions for business reasons, but to all intents and purposes, they were to live out the rest of their lives in self-imposed exile, living primarily, hello, how are you? Living primarily in Zurich in Switzerland, Trieste in what's now Italy, and Paris in France. And everything I've told you about the people in this tower would have long been forgotten were it not for the fact that in 1922, a woman called Sylvia Beach, an American woman of the past, from a small bookstore in Paris called the Shakespeare Book Company that she ran, published a book that would go on to become renowned 
as the finest novel of the 20th century, one of the finest novels ever written. And that book, of course, was James Joyce's Ulysses. At its most basic, it's the story of two men's journeys around, or journey around Dublin City on a single day, the 16th of June, 1904, that's celebrated as Bloomsday in honor of James Joyce all over the world now, this, this day. The 16th of June, 1904, these two men, their journeys very roughly mirror the journeys of Telemachus and his father Odysseus in Homer's Odyssey, but of course that journey takes 10 years, not just a single day. The two men in question are Leopold Bloom, a small Jewish advertising executive, and Stephen Dedalus, whom I'll explain in a moment. And I suppose the other main character in the book is Molly Bloom, Leopold Bloom's wife. Now, I wouldn't say this, anybody would claim that there's a huge plot in Ulysses. It's not so much about the plot. I mean, what happens is these men journey around Dublin, their, their paths intersect and they finally meet. Uh, people go to a funeral, there's a visit to a hospital involved, and there's a visit to the red light district of Dublin involved as well. Um, and Leopold Bloom, I suppose, the central character, is obsessing about the fact that his wife is about to embark on an affair with her singing agent, a guy called Blazes Boylan. But let's just ignore the plot, because it's not really that important. What really is important about the book, I guess, are the layers of meaning that James Joyce heaps into it. And also the styles of writing that enable him to do that. He employs practically every style of writing that was available to him in the English language at the time and makes up a few more himself for good measure. But one style of writing that the book is most renowned for is a style of writing called stream of consciousness. And that's where the thoughts of the characters in the book sometimes just flow out onto the page as they're thinking them. So they're skipping around all over the place and there's scant attention paid to silly things like punctuation. I tell school trips when the school kids are here, if ever they're in trouble over punctuation in their school, they should tell their teacher they're writing in the style of James Joyce. It's never worked to get them out of extra home. Anyway, somebody told me that it's the kind of book that you should read once a decade, not because the book changes, of course, but because you change and you can glean more. And James Joyce knew, it's a quite complicated book to read, and some people are a bit scared of it. And James Joyce knew that he was creating quite a difficult book to read, quite a challenge for his readers. Because he said once after the book was published, and I'm paraphrasing terribly, but he said, you know, I'll ensure my own immortality by confounding my critics forever. He knew that people who loved the book would come back and peel away the layers of the onion time and time again and get different meaning out of it. And those of us who love the book continue to do that. Now, what in God's name has that got to do with this tower? Well, this is what it has to do with the tower. James Joyce chose this tower as the location for the opening chapter of the finest novel of the 20th century. James Joyce's Ulysses begins right here. And when I say right here, of course, I mean right up there at the top of this tower. But this room, for example, is described in the opening chapter of Ulysses. Moreover, the characters that populate the opening chapter of Ulysses are based on the people that James Joyce shared this tower with in September of 1904. But he changes their names to protect their guilt. So Oliver St. John Gogarty becomes a character called Buck Mulligan. Trench becomes a character 
called Haynes. But just like Trench, Haynes is waiting here for his Sandy Cove milk to be delivered for his breakfast. And when the local Sandy Cove lady arrives with the milk, he does exactly as Trench would have done in real life. He addresses her Osgraven, or in Irish. And she hasn't the faintest notion what he's saying. She thinks he's speaking French. <laughs> James Joyce himself becomes one of the main characters, Stephen Dedalus. And that was a character he had already adopted in a previous autobiographical novel, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. And even our friend, the Black Panther, is mentioned in the opening chapter of Ulysses. He doesn't change his name, he's just called the Black Panther. Are we okay? Have we any questions? No? Either I'm doing a good job, or you're all jet lagged or something. <laughs> anyway, if you think of any questions, don't hesitate to ask. If we've no questions, I'm going to invite you to join me at the top of the tower, where we'll continue the story of the Martell Towers very briefly, but more importantly, I think, talk about the opening of the USA, so that's okay with me. Because you came up those stairs without an appropriate amount of awe and wonder. <laughs> because you have to realise that we've just come up the same staircase. We've come up one of the most literally famous staircases in history. Because it's from that staircase that at the very beginning of Ulysses, Buck Mulligan emerges. The first sentence of Ulysses is, the stately, plump Buck Mulligan emerged from the stairhead, bearing a bowl of lather on which a mirror and a razor lay crossed. He came up here at about 8am, they figure, to have a shave on the morning of the 16th of June, 1904. And he came up here dressed in a flowing yellow dressing gown. He was looking very ecclesiastical. And he began the book in much the same way as it was going to continue. He began it in a very shocking, a very terrible way at the time. It, it was a very blasphemous way to start the book because he invites us to join him in a mock Latin mass. In Troibo at Altre Dei, he says, let's go to the altar of God. And he three times mockingly blesses the tower, the surrounding countryside and the mountains. And finally, his friend, Stephen Dedalus, who is, of course, Joyce. just checking. So he calls him up from downstairs, but he calls him by another name. He calls him by his nickname. His nickname for him is Kinch. It means sharp blade. He's referring to Joyce's sharp mind. And he says, come up, Kinch, come up, you fearful Jesuit. And so the book begins. Now, I want to tell you another thing that's very important to us about James Joyce's writing. I told you about the fact that he uses real people and real locations uh, as, as inspiration. But one of the things was that although his books have universal appeal, he bases them very firmly in the city of his birth, Dublin City. And after he wrote Ulysses, he said, because he wasn't a very modest man, he said very arrogantly, you know what, if anything happened to Dublin, you could rebuild it based on the accounts that I've put into Ulysses. And some Joyce and scholars will even tell you that Dublin City is like another character in Ulysses. He describes it with such great accuracy. And he took great pride in that fact. Now, that might seem like a silly thing, it was quite extraordinary when you think that he was writing this book in exile. So how in God's name did he describe these locations with such accuracy? Well, he had three things going for him. First of all, he was a genius. And that's always useful, and it meant that he had a great mind, and it meant that he could remember the almost photographic memory, could remember the locations that he used in Ulysses. 
Secondly, he had a copy of Tom's directory, which was like a census document for the time that told him who lived where. But thirdly, and most importantly, he was constantly badgering his friends and his family to check on facts before he put them into his book. Yeah? As I say to young people, he was constantly Skyping, emailing, and texting his mates to check on facts before he put them into Ulysses. And what that means for us is that we can enjoy the same views from the top of this tower as he describes in the opening chapter of Ulysses. So we can look across, he describes the mail boat as it leaves the harbour mouth of Kingstown Harbour, he calls it. Now Dunleary Harbour, that beautiful granite harbour of Dunleary there. He talks about Buck Mulligan going for a swim in the 40-foot watering hole. That's the 40-foot bathing place. I don't know if anybody's swimming there today. But it's the bathing place just down there. So, um, yeah, I just want to talk a little bit about Joyce and then sure. I have a couple questions at the sure. end. So, um, I guess you already did this, but just for the podcast itself, yeah. can you describe where we're sitting right now? Okay. We're sitting in the round room of the Martello Tower in Sandy Cove, County Dublin. Uh, and this room is famous because while Ulysses didn't actually start in this room, uh, this room is well described in the opening chapter of Ulysses by James Joyce. And he describes, for example, the twin Barbican windows and the light shining down on the flagged floor. Um, and it's here at the beginning of Ulysses that um, the famous the Sandy Cove washerwoman comes up to deliver the milk to uh, Haynes and, uh, and Buck Mulligan and Joyce for their breakfast at the very beginning of the day of the 16th of June 1904, the day of which Ulysses is set. Mm-hmm. Do you know if he used like, photographs or did he send someone here to confirm details like the two windows? Like You said he was 22 well, when well, he <laughs> stayed here. He was 22 when he stayed here and he didn't write the book, I suppose he wrote the book many years later. Uh, but well, I think that, that, like I mentioned earlier on, the key thing that Joyce had was that he was a genius, so he had a superb memory and he could remember these things. Um, but no, what he did, generally speaking, was that, I don't know in particular with this, uh, this, this tower, but he generally, when he was putting descriptions or putting locations into his book, he would write letters uh, and look at newspapers and make sure that he had his facts correct. And he was, uh, he was meticulous about that kind of preparation in his book and his research. Yeah. So... This podcast is about travel and how it changes people, yeah. and uh, I have a soft spot for exile yeah. and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I'm just curious if you can talk a little about his project. Yeah. What was he doing? Why was he so meticulously recreating his well, hometown? Well, I was thinking about this because you mentioned to me that you did want to talk about Joyce and the influence of his travel on his writings. And actually, funnily enough, I was talking to a, a much more expert person than I uh, about this topic, and he, he kind of agreed with me when I said, when we, when we were talking, that, you know what, Joyce travelled, he lived in various different uh, countries, uh, you know, most notably, I suppose, Zurich, Trieste, and Paris, but also he lived for a while in Rome, and he lived for a while in Pula, he lived in, in uh, he stayed a bit of time in London, and of course, Dublin. But actually, his travels, I'm not sure they influenced his writing as much as as the travels that he had within his mind, yeah. because remember, in his mind he was a global player. You know, and he he was he thought of himself as a global player. So while he used Dublin very carefully as as the location for for all of his writings, he was influenced by people like Ibsen, who was uh, who was around that he wrote to at a very early age. Uh, he was influenced by people that he met when he was travelling around the place. 
you know, for example, um, the principal character of, of Ulysses, Leopold Bloom, um, he's, a, he's, a, you know, he's a small Irish uh, uh, Jewish uh, advertising executive, but actually I'm told by more expert people than me that his Judaism as, the, as, it's, as it unfolds in Ulysses is more typical of Hungarian mm. Judaism, which would have been a result of some context that Joyce would have made in Trieste rather than in Dublin. Yeah. You know, there are, but there are many of the other characters in, in Ulysses that are based on our direct copies. The characters that are composite characters would, would have been Leopold Bloom and Molly Bloom pr- uh, primarily, whereas other characters in the book are based quite almost literally on the person that he would have known in Dublin at the time. Yeah. So, so his travels, I think, were more about his, you know, he talks about it, and it, there's a kind of a I suppose a joke in a way at the beginning of the book about Hellenizing Ireland, but I'm not aware that he was ever in Greece. But he would have been, a, he would have travelled in his mind through his love of literature and through his love of reading. He would have travelled, travelled Homer's Odyssey, yeah. and and be very, very familiar with it as as well. Yeah. So I'm not sure his physical travels influenced him as much as the travels within his mind. But it, it's because um, I'm sure he wasn't in Scandinavia. I'm not aware that he was in Scandinavia, and yet Ibsen was a big influence on him as well. Right. It looks like an intense longing for home or nostalgia or wanting to come yeah. back. So, and it, I mean, it's based on the Odyssey, which is the journey home. Sure. So can you talk about that? Did, how yeah. do you feel about Dublin? Like, well, why, you why know, he, 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 his feelings about Dublin and Ireland are, are, are strange. I mean, he said one time, I think that, I, again, I'm going to paraphrase him terribly, but he said that, you know, when I die and you open my body, uh, Dublin will be etched on my heart. And, and so he definitely had a passion for Dublin City, and yet he left. And, and it wasn't a political exile or anything like well, that, right? It, it I mean. kind of was. He, he, he does explain it at, at, at various different points in his life. Uh, one of the things he, he, he said was that he had two masters, and this comes up in Ulysses as well, he had, or, or Portrait of the Artist, I'm not quite sure which, but it, he, he talks about having two masters, one of them being the Catholic Church and the other being the British uh, oppression. Mm. So it, when he was in Ireland, he was conscious of these things bearing down upon him, mm. and he needed to flee. He needed to get out. And he needed to operate on at least a European, if not a global stage, because that was what he thought of himself. Mm-hmm. He didn't... At the time when he was looking at the Irish writers, and, and the reason that he wrote The Holy Office and other things like that, and the reason he had this attitude to, to the Irish literary movement at the time was that he saw the Irish literary movement as looking backwards into the sort of folklore of Ireland, into the history of Ireland, whereas he wanted to look forwards, and he wanted to talk about the hero that is the everyman, mm-hmm. rather than the mythological heroes that were being written about in, in Irish literature at the time. Mm. So he wasn't looking to Coo Cullen, he was looking to Leopold Bloom. You know, it was... Uh, I, I, th- I, think, uh, I think I can understand it. I can understand why he had to escape from here. And remember, like a lot of places that, that existed in the world, the society here was totally repressed. Mm. And so he couldn't have published a book like Ulysses in, in Ireland because it was, it was referred to many years when it used to be smuggled in, it was referred to as the dirty book and people that were relatives of his would hide the fact that they were related to him because it was it was so scandalous for the time to produce a, a book like Ulysses, which talked about... It was the heroism of the ordinary man, and it was the heroism of everyday life. And it was, you know, I, I always consider it a love story in the end. I think Molly Bloom in her final soliloquy turns it into a love story. Even though, and even if you look at that, how could it be a love story when she's just embarked on, a, on an affair with blazes boiling but actually it's that's what love is it's messy 
And he told it like it really is. It's messy. It's not Mills and Bloom. It's messy. People cheat, but yet they can still love each other. People do also, you know, things from their past, the death of their son that ruined their sex life, so to speak. You know, these things happen and they mess up your life. But does that make your love any less or make your life any less heroic? I don't know. Anyway, I think that's the kind of stuff that he liked. But you know what? I'm an amateur. I'm not, an, I'm not a Joyce academic. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an admirer and a fan, but that's all. Well, I'm curious what drew you into this life. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I retired. I was very lucky. I was able to retire reasonably early. And uh, I'm not sure I want to put this on a podcast. But I had, I had a personal tragedy in my own life. And it led me to want to get a distraction and this became my distraction. And you know what, it's like crack cocaine, you know, when you get involved with Joyce because you start you start reading Joyce. First of all, there are his books and, you know, Stephen Joyce, I think, very famously said, just read the damn books and stop worrying about his life. But it's kind of hard to do that because his life is so, you know, it's, it's, I mean, Portrait of the Artist is autobiographical. Uh, Dubliners is based on his experiences as a young boy uh, growing up. Ulysses is semi-autobiographical and so on. So all of these things are bound up with his life. So when you start reading his books, you kind of invariably, I think, get drawn into what his life was happening. We had a reading group here as part of our volunteer group, and uh, we had an expert guiding us through it. And the wonderful thing was to be able to learn a bit about what Joyce's life was, what was happening in Joyce's life that influenced a particular chapter of Ulysses that we might have been reading at that moment in time. And that's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. So much so that very often I, and I know many others, kind of, we'll talk about, we'll talk about James Joyce instead of Stephen Dedalus. We'll talk about Book Mulligan instead of Gogarty or vice versa. You know, we get the characters mixed up. We get real life mixed up with the... I suppose that nowadays they call these kind of factional things, do they? Where, you know, it's based on fact, but it's... It is fact. I mean, his, 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 he, he cheated as a writer, you know. He didn't go to the trouble of inventing characters. The characters presented themselves to him. And he just brought them to another literary life. Yeah. Uh, had you read much of his yeah. work before? I read, uh, read Ulysses when I was in my late teens. I thought it would impress women. That didn't go down so well. Uh, but I'm not sure I understood it. It's not a young person's book. Mm. It's a book that I think... I, I mentioned in the tour that you have to read it every decade or so because you'll take new meaning out of it. And I think that's absolutely true. Mm. And not only that, but the more you read it as you get older, the more you see the work, the genius of the work. Mm. Um, I, I, we were just... Uh, was it last year? I can't remember. I'm lost in time these days. But I, it, Frank... There's a guy called uh, Frank Delaney, who was a, an Irish guy who broadcast for the BBC and, and then for, in the United States he broadcast. And he, I think when he read Ulysses first, he didn't particularly like the book, but he became an absolute fanatic. And he, he did a podcast, much like you're doing now, and he did a podcast called Rejoice. Mm. And Rejoice is an analysis of Ulysses. It's a parsing of Ulysses almost by sentence. Mm. And it was a lifelong work. I don't think he completed it by the time he, 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 he passed away, sadly. Um, but if you ever listen, first of all, he has the most wonderful broadcast voice. And secondly, his passion for the book and his explanation of the book, it's just, it's just unbelievable. So if ever you get a chance to... Uh, well, that's perfect. I was looking for a podcast. Uh, yeah, Rejoice. Yeah. Frank Delaney's Rejoice is... Uh, now it's way too detailed for most people. Sure. It's it, 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 like I say, he was analysing the book, and he was attributing all. Uh, you know, you, you talk about simple things. I try and talk about simple things to illustrate the layers of meaning that Joyce puts into something simple. Something simple like his choice of yellow as the dressing gown that Buck Mulligan wears when he's at the top of this tower, and you know. 
at the surface, it's a yellow dressing gown, big deal. But then you then it's looking ecclesiastical, so that's another level of, of, of meaning. But then yellow is the colour of cowardice, so he was saying something about his attitude to Book Mulligan. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yellow is the colour, then you discover yellow is the colour that was um, used by all uh, painters, classical painters, when they wanted to depict Judas. So, you know, you've got all sorts of different layers, and that's just the colour of the man's dressing gown uh, in, in the opening chapter. You know, almost every sentence of Ulysses, as Frank Delaney eloquently uh, discusses, almost every sentence contains these wonderful, multi-layered references. Now, if Joyce made, meant half of them, he was an absolute genius. Uh, and, it, and it's wonderful to, 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 to read the book. And I think that's what makes it different. I, I, I read trashy novels most of the time, and I like it, you know, I like, you know, I like escapism of, of books, that's great. But the difference between that and a book like Ulysses is just that, you know, what you see is what you get when you read, you know, Stephen King or whatever. It's a good yarn, he tells a great story. But I don't think it has the layers that you get in, in something like, like Joyce. Do you have a favorite image or sentence or turn of phrase from Ulysses? Oh, well, I think everybody's turn of phrase is Molly Bloom's uh, because it ends on such a positive note at the end of the book where she's gone through uh, where she's gone through her day, they've gone through their days and she's uh, in, in bed, they stepped head to toe uh, so they're, they're asleep and she's and we, we've actually done it here, we've had it dramatised here for us in the tower on many occasions on Bloomsday and, and, and other events, uh, there's a woman that does it for us called Katrina Negrasic, she's absolutely excellent and to hear those words, and it, it's, 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 it's a review of the day, it's a review of her life, it's a re- review of her relationships with all her, her lovers throughout her life, and it ends in such an affirmative way with, I, I will, yes, I will. If I'm quoting it correctly, but it's the end of Ulysses. W- would you read that, actually? Oh, yeah. I, I, uh, I, I don't have, have a glasses, but I'll try have a copy here. Oh, I can't read the whole thing, it's huge. No. <laughs> I'll read the last sentence. <laughs> It's a, the whole, well, I won't read the last sentence even because actually the whole thing is just about two or three sentences as far as I remember. Right, yeah, however much you want to... Uh, I can't, I can't <laughs> see, to be honest with you. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, That's okay, if not. <laughs> I, just, I just read the last sentence really, really. I asked him with my eyes to ask again yes, and he asked me, would I, I yes to, to say yes, my mountain flower? And first I put my arms around him, Yes, and drew him down to me so he could feel my breasts, all perfume, yes. And the heart was going like mad and said, yes. I said, yes, I will, yes. Beautiful. (laughs) One of the things that I take great um, solace from is that, you know, we have people visiting here who are Joyce experts. Right. And then we have people who know a little bit about Joyce. I love the Joyce experts. I can learn things from them. And one thing that you recognize when someone is truly a Joyce, Joyce expert, they want to share. Yes. You know, it's like golf. Somebody told me once, when you're playing golf, you should always play with a really good golfer or a really bad golfer. <laughs> because the mediocre golfers tend to be a pain in the backside, you know. Whereas the really good ones want you to learn. Is this making sense to you? Yes, yes. So it's a bit like that with Joyce and scholars, you know. The ones that know a bit and are full of their own self-importance can be a real pain in the backside. The ones that know a lot are fantastic because they want to share and they want to share the joy that they've experienced and so on. And we see that. And I always take great solace in the fact that Joyce himself was a man of the people. 
You know, mm. he he hadn't got pretensions about it. You know, he 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 enjoyed the company of what would have been considered, I suppose, working class or even whatever class people at the time, and he enjoyed that. He didn't have much truck with the. You know, his favourite writer, his favourite pal when he was knocking around Paris, I think, was Hemingway. And Hemingway was that kind of salt-of-the-earth kind of guy, so he liked his company. Famous stories always about him going around into bars, and Joyce would start a fight and get Hemingway to sort it out afterwards. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so those... I like the Joyce, and I like the presentation of Joyce, and I like the accessibility of Joyce that is all about trying to appeal to ordinary people. I think everybody should read Joyce. I don't think, I don't think Ulysses is an elitist book. Of course you have to have a bit of the clevers about you, otherwise it'll get grindingly bored, uh, I'm sure. But I, don't, I think people should be encouraged to read it. Uh, and it shouldn't become, because I don't think Joyce ever wanted it to become, a kind of an, an elitist thing. Mm. You know, I've read Ulysses, therefore I'm more intelligent than everybody else in the world. You know, what a load of shite. <laughs> shite nothings, as he might say. <laughs> So it's, it's, it's got to be like that. It's got to be accessible. And that's what I love about this place too, because this place we have all sorts of people coming in here. We have people who have no knowledge whatsoever about Joyce. And I hope that we encourage them to dip a toe in and have a go, at, at, at certainly at, at the beginning of Ulysses or whatever. Because I think when you visited this place and when you read the opening chapter of Ulysses, there's suddenly a connection. Mm. And it kind of, and like I say, it's like crack cocaine. Once you get started, so, and also now what I encourage people to do is that our website, uh, joystar.ie. Um, Which is excellent, by the way. Oh, good. The blue one. Oh, I yeah. saw that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, at the back of that, we have a kind of a, a link section, and it has links to various different things that I think make uh, Ulysses more acceptable, uh, more accessible. Mm. So, you know, there's a cartoon version. There's a link. I hope it's still working because it keeps changing. There's a link to the very famous Strick film, mm. which, again, is a nice entry point if people are having difficulty getting into the book. I didn't realize there was a film. Oh, there's two it's films of, of Ulysses that I'm aware of. But the, the most famous one is a 1967 version of Ulysses with Milo O'Shea acting as Leopold Bloom and it's black and white, it's set in the 60s, it, it opens, the film opens on location here in this tower um, and it's, uh, it's a fantastic, I think it's a fantastic representation of the book insofar as you can, it's a two hour film, so how can you represent Ulysses in just two hours, but it's absolutely brilliant there was another famous one called Bloom uh, and that, I think that was Stephen Ray was, um, was Leopold in that and I've forgotten the woman's name, but she's absolutely fantastic in it as Molly. I think she's better in Molly in it than the Molly in, in the original one. Uh, but uh, uh, I can't remember her name. My, my mind is going to blink. Well, I wanted to ask about the people that come, oh, yeah, sure. that travel from all around the yeah, world. Are yeah. there any um, pilgrims that have left a vivid impression on yeah. here? No, we we have the, the the literati and the literati, and we have the the normal normal people. Um, Amos Oz, the Israeli writer, came and we took him around the tower, and he says he's very he heavily influenced by Joyce, and he he likes Joyce. So that's extraordinary to see that uh, happening. Um, we've had all sorts of people in here, but I guess what what I really like, and when I'm doing tours, what I really like is I like taking ordinary people who have a bit of an interest and may have read or may have touched on Ulysses, enough to be interested. And then I think that if we're entertaining enough, we're, we're actually making it more accessible and making it more encouraging for them to, to, to get, get involved and get to, to know it. So I, I guess in a, in a bizarre way, that's, I, guess, I find that more satisfying. We also have school kids. We do school. We have a schools program. And um, 
<laughs> we had a, a, our local school here is the Loretto School in Dorky and uh, the girls there actually helped me put together the school's programme and they came, it's basically it's just the same tour but maybe not maybe the rude bits are toned down a little bit <laughs> but uh, she uh, the, 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 there was a wonderful teacher who brought her, her class here and they we give them a quiz book and they used it to run another class afterwards but they also asked their students to these are 16 year old girls I guess 17 year old girls and they were asked to comment about their experiences at the James Joyce Tower Museum here in Sandy Cove and they put them all on post-its and everything else and they put them put them up on a board and the teacher took a photograph of it and by way of thanking us sent us this collage of uh, comments that her, her, her pupils had made and one of the things sticks in my mind because I think it was the best compliment we've ever got and it was one of the kids had written down uh, one of these little girls school kids had written down it was the best visit we had the best tour we did all transition year that's their kind of their break year as they, as they enter into their final exam period said it was like great the greatest uh, trip we had for our transition year even better than the mac makeup demonstration <laughs> And to me, there is no greater praise. There is no greater praise. So you have the Joyce Tower on one hand and the Mac makeup demonstration, and we won. Have most Irish people read Ulysses? Not at all, not in my life. Um, a lot of people will tell you, a lot of people, a lot of people, there's a kind of thing that goes around where people pretend to have read it and they haven't read it at all. And uh, uh, no, not at all. No, I'd, but I'd say quite a lot. And I'd say, I, this might sound terribly, maybe I'm getting as big-headed as Joyce, but I think when people visit here, the bug catches. And so we're trying to promote people to read it more and more. It's a really important book. I mean, it, it's so much about life. It's unbelievable. And it's, it's, it is an extraordinary piece of, it, it's his masterpiece. And it's an extraordinary work of art. It's an extraordinary work of literature. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's kind of, I think, well, this, this again will sound very stupid, but I think that it's, it would be terrible to go through life with, without having experienced, you know, got the emotion that you get from reading Joyce and understanding it. And the best way, like I say, I've read, I've read it, I must have read it about three or four times now at this stage or more, but the time I enjoyed mo most was reading it in a group of people. Mm. Uh, because you know there's an exchange of ideas it's, and we, we were very fortunate we had an expert on sort of all things Homeric and Grecian mythology and so on and then we had someone who knew a lot about Joyce and that's how we were guided through so before each chapter we were able to talk about you know the Homeric references that would appear and then where Joyce was in his life at the time when he was writing this and then what parts of his life were relevant to that particular chapter. But you know, you look at it, it's, it's extraordinary because, and that's what I mean about being dragged into, even though Stephen Dedler said, you know, or Stephen, Stephen Joyce, uh, Joyce's grandson, who was, the, who was the sole surviving direct lineage from him, he was kind of very scathing of people and, and, and very, I suppose, understandably protective of his, his grandfather's private life. And he said, you know, guys, just read the damn book and stop stop always trying to engage and, and find out more and more about his life. Because, of course, people have made a lot of money out of various different scandals that they've uh, uncovered, some of them true, some of them, I guess, not so true. Um, but it's inevitable that you get drawn to his life. I mean, everything that happened in this tower that's described happened to James Joyce. You know, he talks about Buck Mulligan slighting his mother, where it's really a slight against himself, because... He, he, Buck Mulligan is talking about Stephen Dedalus and he talks about Stephen Dedalus not kneeling at the bed of his mother as she died. 
That's absolute truth. That's what happened to James Joyce. James Joyce saw his mother dying, and she died a terrible death from what I gather, and he was asked to kneel at the bed, and he refused. He wouldn't pray, uh, even though she was a devout Catholic. He, at that stage, had rejected it, and he didn't want to do it. And uh, so, uh, you know, his, it's his life. It's, it's somebody's life that you've got in your hands when you're reading the book, and it's somebody's thoughts, and it's somebody's emotions, and it's all... It permeates the book in a way that I think is unique. You know, it's kind of, and you know what? I don't even like the guy. You know, it's, it, I don't sure. Mind him. I, yeah. find, I find him when you know because I've been asked that before. You, do, do you like him? Because you seem to like him. You talk about him so enthusiastically. But you know what? He wasn't a nice man. He was very mean. He cheated on his wife all the time. He consorted with prostitutes for most of his life. He, he, you know, I mentioned upstairs Sylvia Beach when he when he managed to crack the American market. He dumped her and any rights that she might have had in terms of uh, royalties or anything else. He got rid of her. Got her. Pushed her out of the way. And he did that. Even Buck Mulligan, um, Oliver St. John Gogarty, who brought him to this tower, Oliver St. John Gogarty, he treated with absolute contempt, even though Oliver St. John Gogarty was quite good to him. Yeats was a person that he disparaged as well, but Yeats was instrumental in getting him grants from the British government and so on and, and, and supporting him. So, you know, biting the hand that fed is kind of, it should be his epitaph really, because he, he, he just turned him. He got, I don't know what it was, with, with Gogarty for example, um, scholars have said that it's about a jealousy, Gogarty was born into a well-to-do family and so on. And, uh, you know, Gogarty held out the olive branch to him one time when he was visiting Dublin and he went to visit him. I think Gogarty had a place in Eli Place or some place like that. And when he came in, he sat down waiting for Gogarty, who was an eminent surgeon in Dublin at the time, and so was quite wealthy and probably had the trappings of wealth in his home or his consulting rooms or whatever they were. And Joyce looked around and got up and walked off without meeting him. So, you know, it was kind of... He was a kind of a difficult man. Yeah. A difficult man. But fascinating, you see, you know... He's a genius, you know, and his relationship with his, his own immediate family, I mean, there's all sorts of rumours about his relationship with Lucia, which I don't believe, frankly, but I, I'm, I'm certain it must have been very difficult for Lucia and Giorgio, his two children, growing up with the genius. I think, I think for young people, where his art was so important to him and his, his, his work was so important to him that he had to concentrate. And also, he, was a, he liked drinking and he liked the good life and so on, so it must have been difficult for his children. Difficult for the children of a genius. I always counsel my kids. You know, so. <laughs> okay, yeah. just three more questions sure. and we'll be done. Uh, you mentioned that uh, you know Dublin is almost a character in the book. Yeah. How would you summarize what what is the character of Dublin, both yeah. in the book and in your own point of view as we sit here? Oh, you mean nowadays Dublin. Dublin? Well, I'm not James Joyce, so I can't describe him as, well as, <laughs> as, as he could. I think the Dublin of his day was. Um, it was old Dublin. It was an old-fashioned place. It was a nationalist place. You know the 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 incident with the citizen and so on, the anti-Semitism that he describes in that towards Leopold Bloom, the kind of patriotism that was going on. You know, it was a, a, a Joyce's Dublin was it was in a, in a way it was very simple because it was an oppressed uh, a city, um, yet it was quite a beautiful city. But I I think. I think it was claustrophobic. It felt very claustrophobic in, in Ulysses. But at the same time, I think he describes it with a passion, with a love as well. So clearly he had all sorts of ambiguity in terms of his feelings. In terms of his feelings to Ireland, 
you know, again, like we were talking about earlier on, that uh, you know, what drove him from Ireland? It was an oppressed country. It was a, it was a horrible. Place. I mean, and the other question is, you know, why did he end up in Paris? Is another question I'd asked by contrast about Dublin. You know, what was so great about Paris? Well, Paris was the liberal centre of the universe in those days. This was between the wars, and when you looked at society everywhere else, and it's reflected in the banning of his book. New York, you know, America had the the prohibition was in place in America. It was a most conservative and, and horrible place. Going back there now, but that's the way it was in those days. And was that when America was great? I'm not sure. Anyway, um, Britain was the same. It was a very puritanical place. Joyce didn't like that. He wanted freedom of movement. He wanted freedom of the spirit. He wanted freedom to to exercise his his his, his great talent. And so Paris was where not just he, but but many famous people ended up in Paris uh, because it was the liberal centre of the universe. And so maybe rather than his attitude to Dublin, you say, well, how come he was so comfortable in Paris? Mm-hmm. And clearly he was comfortable in Paris because it was a global city. It was a liberal city. It was where artists gathered, where writers gathered. Uh, it was the cafe society, which he liked, and, you know, liked his drink, liked his food. Uh, that was rampant, or, well, that's the wrong word, but it was prevalent in the, in, in the, in the Paris at that time. Mm-hmm. So he loved, the, the, he loved Paris as a city. He loved Dublin, but he knew that it was like his two masters. It was, it was Catholic Church had it oppressed, and it was uh, uh, sort of oppressed by the British also. And Dublin now? <laughs> Dublin now, I love Dublin. I'm a Dubliner, and I absolutely passionately love Dublin, and I think Dublin is a place of... Uh, great crack, it's great fun. It's lovely that we have this, not just Joyce, but we have a literary uh, presence all around Dublin that, that's, that's, that's fantastic. Um, you know, so you, and we have a pub culture, I guess, <laughs> sometimes to our detriment, but I actually quite like it. I like a few jars and uh, I, like the, yeah, I like the friendliness of the people in Dublin. I think it's very hard. You know, I, I see our volunteers who work in this tower, for example, we're all just ordinary people drawn from, you know, the locality that have banded together because we wanted to make sure that this place stayed open. But a more fantastic group of people you couldn't find. And, you know, the, if you read our TripAdvisor uh, reviews, for example, invariably they mention the friendliness of the volunteers and, the, you know, the fact that we chat. And we chat about everything. We try and... It's not just about Joyce. We, we counsel... We, we welcome American refugees at the moment and counsel them about their political situation <laughs> in the country. Uh, we welcome people from Britain into Europe. So we've all these things going on, but... Yeah. I think it's it is a kind of a thing in the old days in in Dublin, and I think it's it's it, it stayed, and even in Joyce's Dublin, uh, you walk into a pub, and before long you've got friends, you know. Before long you're you know unless you're unless you're offensive in some way, but you, if you just walk in and start a conversation, then you're you're part of the scenery. It's it's okay, and you know I think Dublin is a great city, and it's a very cultural city now. You know, we've got lots going. You were was Stuart? No, somebody downstairs told me they went to see Ulysses in the Abbey, which I'm going to see myself this week, and apparently it's a great production, and uh, you know it's great. I, I'd like it. It's a great city, art galleries, museums, lots of drink, lots of storytelling. It's like yeah. it's like a bigger version of the Tower yeah. that Bogarty <laughs> wanted. <laughs> Oh, that's a great characterization. 
so how would you recommend approaching Dublin from a Ulysses perspective? Oh, you have to start. You have to come where it starts. Well, yeah. <laughs> James Joyce Tower Museum. Of course. <laughs> where, where do we go from here? James Joyce, so what is it? They said that in Ulysses they refer to it as the Amalfus. I keep mispronouncing it and getting myself into trouble by calling it the Omphalus, but it's the Omphalus of, uh, of the, the belly button of the world is here in this tower as far as Joyce is concerned. So this is where it all begins. This is where Ulysses begins. But like I say, I think this site, I think Sweeney's in town, uh, is, is a lovely place. The people there are absolutely fantastic. They're all volunteers as well, and they're absolutely passionate about Joyce, and they do these wonderful readings and so on. But you, it's very hard. There's a book written by our curator, uh, Robert Nicholson, and I think, you've, I think you referenced it when you were talking to me in your notes. Um, it's, a, it's, it's all the locations of Ulysses, mm-hmm. and he's described them all and where they are and so on. Unfortunately, we've, we've We've great habit of destroying things in this country. So, uh, Seven Eccles Street, where because the book begins twice, it begins here with Stephen Dedalus, who's a bit of a prat and he's a bit you know highfalutin in his notions and, and his ideas as he's going around the place. But then the more sort of or everyday man, it begins in Chapter Four, where when Leopold Bloom wakes up in Seven Eccles Street. Now, unfortunately, Seven Eccles Street is gone. But, and there are a few Joyce's, but it's interesting to point out, to find the places where they used to be. So that's where, there's a private hospital where, where, where Seven Echo Street used to be. Um, but I think, you know, going around, you can go to the National Library, you can go to all, Glasnevin Cemetery is a great place, and they'll tell you all about the, the, uh, the funeral that happened uh, there that's, that's talked about in Ulysses Dignam's, Dignam's uh, funeral. Um, so there's all Joyce's locations all around, illustrated in, in Robert Nicholson's book, but any tourist office will tell you where to go to, to find them. But I would highly recommend starting here because, you know, we do. I think almost one of the things that cheeses me off sometimes is when there are events in Dublin and they don't mention this place. I mean, mm. because this is truly the, 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 the centre of Joyce's universe. Yeah. For you, to, for you to say it anyway. Yeah. Okay. Last question. Okay, cool. What about you? What is your best travel story? Oh, uh, traveling abroad outside of Ireland? Not necessarily. Uh, what, what travel experience has left the biggest mark in you, or just the best story you have? Oh, God. <laughs> I remember once when I was there. This is, I've, look, at, I've, I've, I've enjoyed traveling around the world. I, I worked in business, and very often in business it's hard because you don't get oh, to, to, to see what you want to see. You travel to a whole lot of cities and see nothing. You go to a conference, you arrive, you're, you're sort of masters of the universe stuff. I'll tell you two stories. The first story was my first time in Australia. I was working with a business that had uh, a factory just outside Sydney. And I flew down to, to have a look at the place. And I came in very late and, as always, was collected by a limo and brought to my lovely hotel. And I was weary after my travels. It was dark. The top curtains in my room were drawn. The bedclothes were pulled down, and a little chocolate on the on the on the pillow, which was lovely. So I, I stumbled into bed and woke up the next morning, and drew back the curtains, and I was looking out over Sydney Harbour with Sydney Harbour Bridge and the Opera House in view, and I remember just taking two steps backwards, because it was just as the Americans would say, so awesome. And it really was awesome because this was every postcard I'd seen of Sydney. It was everything. So that, that's one experience that, that I've had in my travels that, that knocked me for six. Another one was when I ended up in Madrid one time. Um, and I remember at the time there was a Velasquez exhibition. And I like art. So there was a Velasquez travelling exhibition going on at the time. 
and I got a half day, we had a half day to kill in our, in our work commitments and everything else. And we were all good boys and girls, so they let us have a half day to do what we wanted. So I beetled down to see this Velasquez exhibition, only to find the queues were like around several blocks, so there was no way I was going to get to see that exhibit. And I was kind of dejected, and I thought, what am I going to do now? I wasted time getting there, I stumbled back to the hotel. So I was strolling back towards the hotel, but I noticed a sign that said Guernica. And I thought, gosh, they can't mean Guernica, because it hadn't even been on my agenda. I thought, I'd better go down and look at that. So I went down, and there was hardly any queue to see one of the most magnificent pieces of artwork in the world. And again, it's one of these things where you look at that picture. Now, at that time, somebody had attacked it, so they'd had to put it behind glass. It hadn't been behind glass, and it must have been even more impactful when it wasn't behind glass. When I saw it, it was behind glass, and there were guards there, and people queued up and, and had a look at it. And the power that Picasso put into that picture is once you see it, it hits you like a ton of bricks. You see everything that the history of that painting meant, you know, the fact that he wouldn't give it back until Mussolini, well, that must be the other guy, was gone. Uh, he wouldn't give it until, until, uh, until there was a democracy in, in Spain and so on. And the, the, the tragedy that was Guernica and the suffering that was Guernica, you know, he, it just leaps out at you and knocks you for dead. So if anybody's in Madrid and has a half an hour to kill, go see that, it'll change your life. Seriously, unbelievable. So, uh, beautiful. Yeah, what's what's what's, what's, what's Castro? Who is it? Uh, Franco. Franco. Yeah. Franco. There, you have to edit that bit. Out. Yeah, yeah. I think like <laughs> uh, yeah, he wouldn't give it back until Franco was deposed. Uh, he wouldn't allow them to to put uh, Guernica on display until Franco was 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 gone. And it is, uh, but I like paintings like that. I I've often talked about Joyce and paintings because I tell you, I confess to you right now. There's a book I haven't read, and it's Finnegan's Wake. Our reading group have just finished it now. And I haven't read I've tried to read it. A lot of people tell me they've tried to read Ulysses, so I have great sympathy with them. I never found Ulysses terribly difficult, but I found Finnegan's Wake impossible. Mm. And I often compare it to artists, because, and I, this might be a stupid thing to say, but I like somebody like Van Gogh or Picasso or whatever, and you find that they're classically trained, and if you look at any of their exhibitions, they tend to be, what do they call those exhibitions, where they look through their lives and their different stages and so on. And what the artist does, I believe, is looking for truth and beauty, isn't that what they always say? And they take you by the hand and they say, here's my journey to find truth and beauty. And for one of them it ends up with angular drawings, for one of them it ends up with bright yellow furniture in a bedroom and, and sunflowers. And they've taken you to where they're going. And I happily travel with them and enjoy their work and their evolution of their, their talent and their, their gift. Joyce does the same in literature, I, I think. Because when you look at, say, you know, Dubliners, Dubliners is, with one exception, with the exception of the dead, Dubliners is a book that if you didn't have the dead in it, I, I think now, I may be insulting all sorts of Joyce and scholars and everything else, but it's a book that could have been written by somebody else. The dead is a very spectacular uh, story in it, the last story in it. But then you go on to portrait of the artist and it's getting a bit more difficult and his life is becoming entwined more into it and it's getting difficult. Then you get to his masterpiece, Ulysses. And then finally he brings you to Finney, he brings you on this journey uh, and I have to let go of his hand because I can't just make it to where he's going in Finnegan's Wake. Uh, to me, I'm happy to stay 
where, he, where, where, where Ulysses leaves off. Mm. Uh, I'm happy to get my joy from that. Uh, I am conscious it's a big deficit. I mean, you know, as, as a person who is fascinated by Joyce, I should be able to make the final part of the journey. I've tried it many times, uh, but I just, I get fed up with it. So that's it, guys. That's our tower and our tour. I hope you enjoyed it. Oh, no more, no more, no more, no more, no more. No, no I said more. I said more. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, James, for telling this story, for being such a skilled teller, for making clear what is so unclear and daunting. Thanks to you, I'm poised to return to Dublin at the end of this week and finish the last 40 pages of Ulysses, where I began. You converted me. To my listeners, when you go to Dublin, make sure you visit Sandy Cove and the Joyce Tower. Reach out to the friends of the Joyce Tower Society and take the wonderful tour. You can find a link on our website, www.observereffectpodcast.com, and on our page on Facebook. Thank you to Dana Boulay for her music. There's really only one way to end, with another destination far on the horizon, away, alone, a last, a loved, a long. <laughs>